Well, good morning, Salem family. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We'll say mother, happy, mother, <coughs> excuse me, happy Mother's Day to, um, to all who are mothers. Um, we are so very thankful for our mothers. And, um, and I hope that you are intentional today to honor the mothers around you, uh, whether that's your mom, you're able to do that with your mom or not. Um, all mothers are worthy of being honored, and I hope that you take the time today just to simply say Happy Mother's Day to, to other people, the, to the mothers that you come in contact with. At the end of the service, as um, you are leaving, we have our kids who are bringing, uh, who are going to be handing out carnations at our main exits out the, uh, the backside of the auditorium here. So make sure you grab one as you, as you head out here in a little while. From the outset today, I want to warn you that um, we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning in the short amount of time that we've got together. So I would encourage you to pull out your Bibles and, uh, and maybe turn over your handout to where you can take some notes on the back and just hang on, okay? Can you do that? Um, we're almost all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, and this is a sermon that Jesus preached to his disciples. Uh, there was a whole lot of other people that were gathered around to see this, but the sermon is primarily given to Jesus' disciples. You see, all those other people all around him hadn't made any really firm con commitment to Jesus at this point. Um, they're simply curious about Jesus, and so they're standing around and they're listening to this sermon. Now, up to this point, when Jesus is, is preaching, his main idea of the sermon has been that there is a radical new standard for achieving righteousness. And then that new standard of achieving, achieving righteousness is what gets us a relationship with God. So before this, if a person kept the law, offered their sacrifices to God, did their best to live a good life, then they would have a relationship with God. But now Jesus is ushering in a completely new standard of righteousness. You see, now instead of adherence to the law getting you into heaven, Jesus himself is the only one who can get a person into heaven. There's not enough good works that you can ever do to, to earn it. There's no amount of good intentions that will cut it. There is no other way to get to God except through Jesus. And what we're talking about today, the rubber really meets the road. Jesus is laying it all out there in no uncertain terms about how a, a person has a relationship with God. And, um, and he should know. He's God's son. Um, so he's teaching with an authority that when we get to our passage next week, one of the things we're going to find is that people are amazed at this authority that he has in, in, in teaching and in, and in preaching. But he can say these things and he can teach in this authoritative manner because he is God's son. Let's jump in here by looking at uh, Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13, okay? Verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, Jesus says, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. I want you to imagine with me that you were in standing in a big room and there's a whole lot of other people with you in this big room. And there's only two doors. One door is really big. The other door is really small. The vast majority of people around you are choosing that bigger door because it's easy to go through simply because of the size of it. But the other door is the door that Jesus calls us as humans to go through, okay? It, it, it's smaller. It's not as flashy. It's not as attractive. In fact, there's a lot of people who are calling you to go through the wide door that make fun of you when you go through the small door. 
The problem is that the big, flashy, attractive door leads to death and an eternity in hell. Jesus says that the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. You see, this door may lead to a whole lot of pleasure in this journey to eternity, but the end of that journey is going to take you nowhere except eternal death. The other door, the smaller one, isn't going to lead to an easy life. In fact, sometimes it's really tough to live as a Christian, but in the end, it will lead to eternal life. I've heard it described before, these two doors, I've heard it described as you can pick the big gate, the big door, and have your pleasure now, or you can pick the small gate and have your pleasure later. But I'm going to be completely honest with you, I don't agree with that at all. I cannot imagine going through this life without a personal relationship with Jesus. You see, I've got a peace that passes all understanding that guards my mind and heart as a Christian. I've experienced unconditional love beyond anything this world could ever offer me. I've got the chance to live in community with other Christians such as you from all kinds of backgrounds and races and ethnicities and socioeconomic statuses that I never would have had if I hadn't entered in through that narrow gate into a relationship with Jesus. And if you were to ask me where I am in my faith right now, if I have any regrets choosing that narrow gate, I'm going to tell you absolutely not. Absolutely not. And I've got no desire to go back to that wide gate and go through that one. Now, I know that sometimes Jesus asks things of me that are sometimes hard, but this momentary light affliction is preparing for me an eternal weight of glory beyond anything that I can ever imagine. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4 is a verse I've quoted a couple of times the last several weeks. It tells me that I have been born again. Hold on to those words. Born again, because we're going to come back to those in just a few moments. I have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And I know that this salvation is kept in heaven for me, meaning that I can count on it. It's not going anywhere, and there's nothing I can do to lose that salvation. And all of this is mine. Why? Because I chose to enter in through the narrow gate rather than follow so many other people in this world that go through the wide gate. I hope with everything inside of me that you have entered into the narrow gate. I hope that you can say with certainty that you chose the door that leads to eternal life. There's only two doors. There's the wide door, the narrow door. There are no other doors. That's it. Let's pick up our reading in verse 15. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus here continues talking about salvation by talking about the difference between the good fruit and the bad fruit. Now, the sad reality is that there is an enemy out there who is trying to catch as many people as he can and send them through the wide gate that we talked about just a moment ago. And there's even people who are out there who are masquerading as Christians who are not legit Christians, and all they do is tear up the church and try to pull as many people away from Jesus as they can. 
Now, they don't always know they're doing it. It's not like it's always their intention to tear people away from Jesus, but they do. John chapter 10, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. The good shepherd is constantly calling his sheep to come to him. But these wolves in sheep clothing are coming to scatter the sheep and to to drive them away from the shepherd. That wolf in sheep's clothing is oftentimes the person in the church who causes disunity or who breeds distrust of other believers. It's the person, uh, and pastors especially, I think, oftentimes, who preach any gospel besides the true gospel. It's the, it's the people who give lip service to following Jesus, and maybe they do on Sunday. Maybe they're the best thing that you can ever see on Sunday when they're here. But the rest of the week, they live any way they want to, destroying the reputation of the church and of Christianity in general. You see, these wolves in sheep's clothing are often people who know the Bible inside and out, but the beauty of the transformational gospel hasn't penetrated their hearts. They most often look good on the outside, but their hearts are more concerned with curbing their Christian cannibalistic appetites than on truly building the kingdom of God. In other words, I want to do everything I can to tear other people down and build myself up. They're more concerned about getting what they want out of the church and out of the people than they are the advancement of the gospel. And Jesus says this, he says, you know what? It may take some time, but eventually you're going to be able to tell who is legit and who is not. How? By the fruit that they bear. You know, some people are a part of the church their entire lives, and at the end of all that time in the church, they're not known for their love for the other saints. They're not known for the disciples that they multiplied. They're not known for their faithfulness in prayer. They're not known for their perseverance and suffering. They're known more for their grumpiness and their divisive attitudes than anything else. And you know, the bad fruit does eventually come out. And you know, it may not come out while we're here on this earth. That rottenness might not be revealed until one day when that person is standing before God at the judgment, and at that point, the bad fruit comes out. Jesus says, on the other hand, a healthy tree cannot help but bear good fruit. If the quality of your faith is pure and the gospel is actively transforming you into a Christ-like child of God, good fruit will become evident. It will be seen to the people around you. So when your worship of God is true and genuine and when your love for fellow believers in the church of Jesus Christ is clearly seen, when your intentions are pure and perseverance during suffering, when you care for those in the community and in the church who cannot care for themselves, when the lasting impression that people have of you is not that you're perfect, but that you are continually repentant, that's when the good fruit starts to come out. There is nothing like bad fruit to turn a person away in disgust. You ever been there before? put your hand down in the fruit jar or the fruit basket, whatever it is, and you touch something that's supposed to be firm and good, and it's not. It's rotten. Turns you away in disgust. But on the other hand, the person with the good fruit makes people want more, and not more of of yourself. It makes them want more of your Savior. 
You know, the really sobering thing about the set of verses that we just read is that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Meaning that the person who produces bad fruit is liable to eternal judgment in hell. And listen, it's not necessarily because they did bad things while they lived here on earth. In fact, there's a whole lot of people in hell who were really good people while they lived. There is only one thing that will send a person to hell. One thing alone. Nothing else will send you to hell but an unregenerate heart. That is the only thing that will send a person to hell. Here's what Jesus says starting in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Folks, these are what I firmly believe to be the scariest verses in the entire Bible. Because what we find in these verses is that there is some really good people who are not going to spend eternity in heaven. They're going to spend their lives after death in an eternal hell separated from God because they never truly had a relationship with God. I want you to remember, this is Jesus speaking here, okay? And he says that some people are going to stand in front of him one day and throughout their time on earth, they call Jesus Lord. So when they prayed, they said, Lord. When they were talking about Jesus, they said, Lord. They did all kinds of good works. They lived a good life. But Jesus responds to them because he can see the true condition of their heart on that day of judgment is going to be, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. And all the good intentions that they ever had are good for nothing at all except to send them to hell. The traditional story that's told about the 1924 World Series goes like this. In the 1924 World Series, the New York Giants and the Washington Senators were tied after six games. Griffith Stadium in Washington was packed for the final game on October 10th, 1924. At the beginning of the ninth inning, the score was tied at three runs each. New York didn't score any runs, and Washington came to bat. The home team fans screamed for one lone run, which would win the series and the world championship for the Senators. The first two men made outs, and it looked like there would be extra innings. Then a player named Leon Goose Goslin came to the plate. Two strikes were called, and then two balls. The crowd was watching every pitch. On the fifth pitch, Goslin stepped into the ball and slammed it to left center field. The crowd became delirious. It looked like a home run, but it hit inches below the top of the wall and fell back onto the field of play. Goslin was running around the bases, slowing down for a triple when the third base coach waved him on to try for an in-park home run. The shortstop took the throw from left center and fired the ball to the catcher. Goslin slid into home in a cloud of dust, seemingly a split second before the tag. The catcher followed the routine of throwing the ball around the bases just in case while waiting for the umpire to make the call. The umpire delayed his call, and after consulting with the other umpires, he cried, You're out! 
Washington manager, Bucky Harris, along with his team and fans, rushed onto the field protesting the call. The umpire secured order and announced, ladies and gentlemen, the batter is out, not because he didn't beat the ball at home plate, but because he didn't touch first base. The players were always required to touch each base with their foot as they rounded the bases, and Goslin didn't do it. Now, there's some debate about if that's how it actually happened. But this story really hits home with what we're talking about today. In life, a lot of people play the game. They get the hit, start running the spiritual bases. Second base, and they're baptized, and they join a church. They hit third base, doing a whole bunch of good things. They head for home and slide in, thinking they've got it in the bag. But Jesus Christ, as the umpire, has no choice but to call out because they never touched first base. You see, first base is salvation. First base is what Jesus told Nicodemus in the middle of the night when Nicodemus came to see him, and he asked this question about salvation. Do you remember what Jesus said? He told Nicodemus that unless a person is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus is confused, and he wants to know how in the world he's supposed to go back into his mother's womb again to be born again. And it seems like Jesus is making it impossible for him to enter into heaven. But Jesus shows him how simple it is. Nicodemus. You've got to be washed clean by the washing of the Holy Spirit. That sin nature that you were born with has got to be washed away by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's what we call regeneration, new life. Well, how does that happen? And Jesus tells Nicodemus that in the same way that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness and the people looked on the serpent and were saved, the Son of Man must be lifted up. So when Jesus says that, he's talking about himself being lifted up on the cross to die for your sin and for my sin. The Son of Man must be lifted up and that everyone who believes in him would have eternal life. And then we get to the part of this story where Jesus is with Nicodemus and Jesus gives Nicodemus what we consider to be the most famous verse in all the Bible. And he says, Nicodemus, and you can see it, you can see it. Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Nicodemus, you don't have to go to hell. You can have eternal life through believing in me, Jesus. 2022, Salem Baptist Church, Winston-Salem, the world at large, you don't have to go to hell. You can have a relationship with God and spend eternity with him just through believing in Jesus. Jesus continues on. We just read John 3, 16. He continues on in verse 17 by saying, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Earlier in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, we learned that only those who do the will of the Father will enter into heaven. Can I tell you what the will of God is? The will of God is for mankind to be saved through Jesus Christ and through his work on the cross. That's the will of God. And believing in and placing your faith and trust in Jesus alone for salvation is fulfilling the will of God. 
Here's verse 18, John 3, 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Folks, God created us to have a right relationship with him. And when we don't have a right relationship with God, it's not his fault because he's done absolutely everything necessary to secure our salvation. If we don't have a right relationship with God, it is our fault and ours alone. If we haven't believed in Jesus, then we are condemned. If we have believed in Jesus for salvation, then that condemnation has been lifted off of us. And instead of being under the wrath of God, we are his beloved child and we are safe in his arms for all of eternity. If I could be really, really honest with you here for just a moment, I'm afraid that there are people in our church who are unsaved Christians. Meaning that you call yourself a Christian, you attend church regularly, you do your best to live a good life. Uh, when the census questionnaire comes around and it has that little mark for religion, you put Christianity in that little mark, but you are unsaved. There's an author and pastor by the name of Dean and Sarah who writes that cultural Christianity is an epidemic, especially in the South. And he can say that. He lives in Tallahassee and ministers in Tallahassee, Florida. He says, cultural Christianity is an epidemic. He says that many Americans, when they get to heaven, are going to say such things as, Lord, did we not go to church on Easter? Lord, did we not raise our kids with good morals? Lord, did we not get misty-eyed when we sang God bless America at baseball games? And Christ will say the very same thing that he will say to many others, depart from me, I never knew you. I can't help but think that the chances are really high that there are people here this morning or maybe watching online who hit that second base of church membership and baptism and move on to the third base of doing good things and are on their way to home plate. But when they get to home plate and they look at that umpire, Jesus Christ in the eyes, he's going to say, you missed it. You missed genuine repentance. You missed allowing me to make you a new person through regeneration. You were never born again. You just covered up your sin with good works, and now it's too late. Depart from me because I don't know you. Church, this is a heavy sermon today. It's a heavy passage. You're like, it's Mother's Day for crying out loud. One day I'm going to stand before the Lord and I'm going to give an account of whether or not I told you the truth. And my fear of God is a whole lot stronger than my fear of anything that you might think. If you want to continue to be a part of our church. So I can with all confidence stand here and tell you that I love you and that God loves you. He loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die in your place. And it's likely that there's some of you here today who fall into one of three camps, and all of them require action on your part. Number one, as we've started to talk, we talked about the wolf in sheep's clothing, and you might be a wolf today. You look really, really good on the outside, but the inside is full of deceit, and all you're trying to do is fool the people around you. You're going to be found out whether here on earth or in heaven, and it's far better to repent here on earth than to get to heaven and it be too late. Or maybe you're bad fruit. 
The tree of your life is producing bad fruit instead of good fruit. By the way, if you're not producing good fruit, then you're producing bad fruit. Jesus says that the bad tree is gonna be cut down, thrown into the fire, and burned up. If you are a bad tree producing bad fruit, you will be found out, either here on earth or in heaven. And once again, it is far better to repent here on earth than to get to heaven and it be too late. And then number three, you might be an unsaved Christian. You proclaim Jesus as Lord, but you haven't repented of your sin. You haven't truly yielded control of your life to Jesus. You haven't been born again. There's been no regeneration. The Holy Spirit doesn't indwell you, and he hasn't washed the old you away. You're still following darkness rather than light. And you may be acting like you're a good Christian, but deep down you know that you're not legit. Right about now, you may be sitting there in your seat, and your heart is pumping out of your chest, and it feels like the Holy Spirit is touching your very soul, and he's saying you're the wolf, the bad fruit, the unsaved Christian, or all three. But you're scared because you know a lot of people in this room. And you don't want everybody to think that you've been a fake. But I got two really simple responses to that. First of all, you know, there's a chance at least somebody already knows you're a fake. But then number two, while there may be a small chance that somebody might would think something negative of you, and I don't think it's really much of a chance at all for making things right with God, I can with 100% certainty say that there is a 100% chance that you're going to stand before God one day, and if you haven't made things right with him on this earth, then he will, in all of his righteous judge, justice, turn you away from him and turn you away from heaven, and you will spend eternity in hell apart from him. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, we read that now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. This is it. Would, would all of you please stand? And as you're standing, I'm going to ask that the worship team go ahead and come up. And, and as they come, what I want you to do is I want you to turn your attention to the screen. And, and there's a verse, a few verses here together that I want to read out loud for us. It's 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 3. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. We're about to sing, and, and, and as we do sing, if you're realizing that you need to come to Jesus, I want to invite you just to come right up here and, and step out of your seat, come up and grab myself or grab another pastor, and we're going to talk and we're going to pray with you. So if the Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart right now, then this is an invitation for you to come up here and do something about it. But then also, you may be a Christian here and you realize there's some, bu some business that you need to do with God. Then you come up here as well, and this altar is open. You pray however you need to pray. Our God loves us so much, so much that he sent Jesus to die for us. All he asks in return is repentance 
and our all. So you respond however the Lord would have you respond as we sing.